In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. The research group Barna released a study in February that explores the experience of practicing Christians along generational lines, millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, etc. I heard about it because of the hand-wringing inspired by one particular data point. In response to the statement, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in the hopes that they will one day share the same faith, 47% of Christians aged 20 to 34 said, yes, I agree. I do think that's wrong. That was nearly double the amount of the previous generation. And the rest of the study paints a more complicated picture. Millennial Christians, for example, hold stronger beliefs about the Bible and actually read the Bible more than any other group, at least according to this survey. But evangelism is a sticking point, and I am on the tail end of the millennial generation, and I I see myself in that category. Over the last, I don't know, three days, I've recommended a restaurant, a local IPA, and the new Vampire Weekend record, (laughs) which is really good. I forward an article about why people in Scandinavian countries are so much happier than we are. But telling people about Jesus, that's personal. And it feels implicitly judgmental. This is not a sermon about evangelism. You can relax. But I do want to talk about conversion and being a Christian. Our text from Acts 9 is perhaps the most famous conversion story in the history of the world. The turning of Saul, the Pharisee, to Jesus Christ. And to whatever degree, our ambivalence about evangelism is rooted in confusion about what the whole Christian thing is about. I think this story could be very helpful. I'm going to do three quick qualifiers here. First, the electionary, uh, which we're following in the season of Easter, gave us the option of extending the reading from Acts 9 until like verse 20. We did not do that for the sake of time, but I am going to refer to portions of that story that are not printed in your bulletin. You'll just have to believe me that they are indeed there. Second qualifier, I was on a retreat for most of this week. And I, therefore, didn't have a lot of time to prepare this sermon. So I borrowed pretty liberally from other sermons I've heard on this text over the years. Uh, And so if something strikes you as particularly profound, it probably did not originate with me. Uh, Third, and most substantially, this story about Paul and how he became a Christian is very dramatic. It's very extraordinary. And it might be easy for you to think, I do not relate to Paul's experience at all. And you may indeed not. But there's a very famous passage. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it. It's from 1 Timothy 1. Paul says, uh, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And then he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example 
to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul's conversion story is dramatic and it's extraordinary and it's bizarre. But there are, according to him, commonalities that we can discern from his experience to ours. What are they? Well, I want to explore three. I want to say becoming a Christian or or just being a Christian involves three things. A collision, a process, and an embrace. You can't be a Christian, truly, without having that collision, this process, and an embrace. All right, collision. Saul is traveling the 150 or so miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. And at the end of its journey, he falls to the ground. Maybe he was on a horse, we don't really know, but he falls to the ground. Why? What caused him to fall? The brilliant light of the glory of God? The thundering voice of Jesus? That surely had something to do with it. But can we say that on a deeper level, Paul had a head-on collision with the truth. Saul met a God who has his own reality, a God who is there, and it knocked him to the ground. Who are you, Lord? He says. That is not a question Saul was asking before he met Jesus. Saul's whole life was built on the conviction that he knew exactly who God was. And he knew exactly what God wanted from humankind. In fact, many years after this experience, Paul, reflecting on his manner of life before meeting Jesus, this is from Galatians chapter 1, he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond anyone of my own age. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul had this sanctioned understanding of who he thought God was. And he was therefore diametrically opposed to the claims of this new Christian group. Paul, he had no vision for how God would become a human being or that God would set aside the temple and its sacrificial system. Paul, Saul, sorry, I'm using those terms interchangeably, Saul, in his wildest dreams, could not imagine how Jesus of Nazareth, crucified as a law breaker, could have God on his side. And because he was so sure that he knew who God was, he was convinced the Christians were wrong. But what happened on the road to Damascus, is that this God that existed in Paul's mind, this projection of his imagination, met the God who is indeed there, the God who has his own reality, and it felt like running into a brick wall. Now, what we imagine God or the meaning and purpose of life or whatever to be is probably pretty different than Paul. But that principle endures. One of the hallmarks of being a Christian is that you are told things that you don't want to hear. You learn things about yourself 
and maybe even about God that are challenging, that don't merely confirm your pre-existing worldview. Things which knock you to the ground because you're colliding with the truth. That's what happened to Saul. How does that happen to us? Apart from, you know, a bodily encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Look, I can only speak here out of my own experience. And I don't have a, a definite moment of conversion. I do consider myself a Christian. You might be glad to know. But there's not this one moment. I, I root a lot of my faith, however, and this is going to sound funny, but just stay with me here. In the experience of giving the Bible the benefit of the doubt and surrounding myself with people who give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. As if to say, people who read Scripture as if it is indeed God's Word and try to live in light of what's revealed. Giving the Bible the benefit of the doubt, not saying, I don't really like this part, or that part raises uncomfortable questions, or gosh, that's weird, I don't get that. But taking all of it, and of course interpreting it and asking hard questions, but really giving it the benefit of the, of the doubt. I find, through that experience, that it's not, it's not particularly comfortable that God tells me things about myself that I don't like, or asks me to do things that I would frankly rather not do. But that's helpful if for no other reason that it leads me to believe that I'm on the right track. And let me give you another more concrete example. I mentioned earlier this week that I was on a retreat. Um, I was in Orlando. And I'm a, I'm a part of this program that brings pastors and ministry leaders together. And I've been a part of things like this in the past. Oftentimes they're kind of lame. But this one is unique because there's, I think there's 14 people. And I am one of two white guys, which is unusual in my experience. So the majority of people are either women or, and or people of color. It's actually put together by the folks who did the Repentance Project, those of you who did that. And so what I'm seeing as I'm with my new friends, I'm seeing how they read Scripture, how they're trying to live in light of what Scripture teaches. And that experience is raising all kinds of uncomfortable realities about myself, about my ignorance and arrogance, frankly, and my cynicism and apathy. It's painful, but it's good. It's a collision with the truth, and it's the hallmark of life as a Christian. Collision process. No matter how dramatic or instantaneous it looks, becoming a Christian is always the result of a process. God is working below the surface and behind the scenes. Now, where do we see that in Acts 9? We don't really see that in Acts 9, but the story of Paul's conversion is told three times in the book of Acts. And the third time, Acts 26, Paul is recounting the same experience before King Agrippa while he's under arrest. And the stories are very similar, but there's one pretty significant difference. 
Well, in the later version, Acts 26, Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And then he adds, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what are goads? A goad is a sharp stick. You can almost picture a spear that shepherds would use to prick and prod their sheep. If you were wandering away from food or pasture, you got the goad. If you were wandering towards a cliff or a predator, what'd you get? You got the goad. Sheep are not open to reason. (laughs) They can't be persuaded. If you want them to be directed, you have to goad them. And look, being, I'm presumably, goaded hurts, but it keeps you safe. Jesus Christ, on the road to Damascus, says to Saul, this is what I've been doing to you. I've been preparing you for this encounter with me. I've been bringing you close to me. As if to say, no matter how determined and obstinate Saul looks at the beginning of our passage, breathing out murderous threats, the Lord had been goading him, had been sowing doubt and pain and confusion into his life, pricking, prodding, directing Saul to himself. Maybe it was when Saul saw Stephen martyred in Acts 7. While they were stoning him, it says, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Maybe Stephen's courage and compassion shook Paul to his core. Or maybe Paul, Saul, started to realize that he was not able to keep God's law with the integrity and consistency it demanded. Paul reflects on that experience in Romans 7. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body that is subject to death? We don't really know how the Lord was goading Saul, but we know he was. Jesus had been preparing him for this experience. Now, how do we apply this to us? Well, I do want to say that maybe some of the challenges that are present in your life right now are there for a reason. They're designed to bring you closer to God. Why is life so difficult? Why are we always so busy, are so anxious, are so defeated, are so guilty. Sometimes, sometimes that pain or confusion or even despair is the goading of our good shepherd trying to bring you closer to himself. The Lord is not hurting us for the sake of hurting us, 
but we do get the goads because we are not always open to reason. Hebrews 12 says, endure hardship as a discipline. God is treating you as his children. Saul, Saul, you, uh, you double the name in Hebrew idiom to express longing and intimacy. Moses, Moses, God says from the burning bush. Samuel, Samuel in the house of the Lord. David, Absalom, Absalom to his lost son. Jesus Christ says to Saul and says to us, Nick, Nick, Peter, Peter, I'm bringing you to me. Little by little, step by step, it's a process. Collision, process, finally embrace. Here's where we're going to look at parts of the story not printed in the bulletin. After Saul's encounter with Jesus near Damascus, he is directed to go into the city and stay at the home of Judas. And for three days, Saul cannot see anything, and he doesn't drink or eat anything. At some point in those 72 hours, the Lord calls out to a disciple named Ananias. He tells him to visit Saul, lay his hands on him, and restore Saul's sight. Ananias has legitimate questions about this. He knows who Saul is, yet he goes. And when Ananias enters the house of Judas on straight street, he lays his hands on Saul, and it says this in verse 17. He says, brother. And then something like scales fell off his eyes. And Saul got up, was baptized, and he ate some food. Why, why the laying on of hands? Have you ever wondered that? We have prayer teams, and every week they pray for people, and they lay their hands. Why? Like, is it magic? Like, does the spirit transfer? No. It's, it's just body language. It says, I'm with you. You're not alone. Why does Ananias call Saul brother? Why does he say that? He's not stupid. Ananias knows that Saul carries in his pocket an arrest warrant that gives him authority to take Ananias and his whole family off to jail. Why does he call Saul brother? Because Ananias understands what Christianity is all about. He knows that in the new covenant, God relates to us on the basis of grace, not judgment. He knows that the most important thing about Saul is not his past, what he has done. It's what our Lord has done for him. He knows that in Jesus, mercy has triumphed and that wicked people are not simply punished and held to account. He knows that Jesus did, in fact, die as a lawbreaker. But he suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of wicked, 
awful, violent people like Saul. So here's what I want you to see. The, the embrace and the words of Ananias are not just his, are they? They are, in some way, the words and the embrace of Jesus. Saul, Jesus says to him, brother, rest in my arms. Welcome home. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's a collision with the truth. It's meeting with a God who is really there, there, who is not just a projection of our own imaginations. It's the result of a process. Jesus brings us to himself step by step. But in the end, in the end, it's simply this. Embrace forgiveness resting in the scarred hands and wounded side of love. Let's, let's close with that question we asked at the beginning. Is it wrong to share your personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in the hopes that they will one day share the same faith? It depends, doesn't it, on what your personal beliefs are. And if your faith is about power, and control, if it's rooted in judgment and superiority, and I don't know on what basis you could say it's wrong, but it's definitely lame. But that is not Christianity. Christianity is about truth, but it's truth we can trust. Truth that's been embodied once and for all and sovereign, sacrificial love. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you came to rescue people like Saul and that you're still in the business of rescuing people like us. Encourage us today, Lord, with your truth. Comfort us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen.